0: I'd like to speak this evening about peace and happiness and the relationship between what we're doing here and those possibilities for us in our lives and it's kind of interesting arriving sitting down and the sensing that being parked directly in front of one of the four sort of rows of cushions uh, it was not really possible to see anybody in that whole row and I didn't think I'd actually seen them some of them probably for the whole retreat yet and just the sense of oh well this is how it is. Why should I try and change it? No no need to mess with the way things are. Something one often hears expressed at the front of a uh, of a hall in a retreat like this. And at the same time just listening to myself in a sense of Oh, actually no, I'd like to I'd like to just have a sense of being able to see more people. I'm engaged in the endeavor of communicating with them and it's kind of Useful as well as nice. They have some sense of being in relationship with you. And I think it's an interesting sort of situation to reflect upon in the context of what we're doing here. Because in dharma practice we often hear, and with great benefit and value, hear about the, the power of just receiving things as they are, not seeking to adjust or fix or change. And yet that can sometimes be interpreted by us, I think, as a somehow becoming passive or losing a capacity to respond creatively or actively with whatever situation we're in. And so... something about finding the balance between those two possibilities what it means to just receive the way things are and what's possible for us by way of responding to that the the words that i spoke already happiness peace these are words that probably for many of us have some resonance some pull, some draw, we might feel them very keenly or they might not be ones we relate to that strongly but if not there's probably other words then that we might substitute for them that evoke for us or call from within us a sense of something which we long for in our hearts, something which we aspire to in our lives and i think it's really important that we honor that sense of aspiration that sense of possibility and that the healthy sense of of longing that that calls us to explore that brings us to a retreat that asks us to to look at our lives to look at how we're living in order to see clearly in order to understand deeply The Buddha was very well known for having observed on a number of occasions, and something he sort of sort of pointed to as one of the core things he had to say was he said he talked about the nature and the experience of suffering in life, about how we encounter that which we do not wish for, that which we do not seek and cannot control. And that very much the heart of his teaching, the heart of his exploration in life, which and through which his teaching came, was about how one responds to that reality. How one meets and engages with that actuality. That we experience difficulty, challenge, pain, suffering in life. And in relationship to this, the Buddha said... I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. And it clearly points to what the Buddha was concerned about and what his teachings were directed towards. And yet, as a friend of mine in America once observed, I found it rather interesting and amusing. He said, well that's interesting because that's two things. Suffering and the end of suffering. And uh, my friend, a very uh, committed practitioner and uh, his great appreciation and respect for the Buddha, and nonetheless uh, came to speculate that maybe the Buddha had began by just teaching suffering. And it wasn't received with a lot of enthusiasm. Just one thing, suffering. I mean, is that what would bring us to a retreat? You know, the path of suffering. Come along. You can have more of this. Probably not so many people would sign up and so my friend went on to you know speculate also maybe just teaching suffering isn't enough suffering and the end of suffering now this is something that attracts us this is something that's interesting because hearing about the fact of suffering as the buddha spoke to it is actually really important it's there's something crucial to in the recognizing and the acknowledging In the not pretending or denying, not pretending it isn't so, not denying the truth of that aspect and degree of our experience, which isn't all of our experience by any means, but that part of it which we would describe or regard as suffering, that is difficult, that is not easy. And that together with that recognition of suffering in life, and it's not surprising to us. we recognize, we hear that. And yet sometimes, many around us, it's like no one really wants to talk about it. No one really want, we want to moan about the problems or get angry with perceived causes, but really just acknowledging the experience and the reality for ourselves and each other isn't something we're necessarily supported or encouraged to do. And yet, it's part of our reality. It's part of what's true for us. And yet together with that acknowledgement there's the recognition of the end of suffering, the teaching of the end of suffering. And this is a remarkable and wonderful offering that the Buddha made and that is available to us through the practice of meditation, through the reflections and explorations of spiritual teachings. To come to the end of suffering that this path is not a path of making for more suffering, but in fact of transforming the experience of suffering, transforming our lives. And the Buddha spoke of this as something which was possible for each one of us. And through the the teaching and the, the practice of these teachings, through the generations between the time of the Buddha and this day, again and again we hear teachings from people who speak of their own experience of transformation and the wise men and women who have learned and who have spoken to us and speak through us of the transformation of our lives. And so the The very condition that we're concerned with here is the condition of our heart and our mind and our body. Because this concerns us. This is what's most truly and deeply important to us all. Many times we imagine the things that are very important to us are external. And yet, for the most part, they are important because of the way they affect us, the way they touch us. And yet, so far as we keep our attention focused externally on circumstances, situations, conditions that we believe, and that are, of course, important. I'm not saying they aren't important. But so long as our attention is focused externally, it's very hard to see. It's very hard to recognize that, in fact, it is our inner experience which is conditioned by those outer circumstances and it's that inner experience which we're seeking to transform. And we cannot transform our inner experience through manipulating the world. We can sometimes change our experience but we can't transform it. We can't release our heart and our mind from the entanglement in which we struggle and suffer. (coughs) and so just recognizing the sense of wow well, yeah we encounter challenge in life we all do why is it that words like peace or happiness have a resonance for us that sound attractive that might make us you know feel curious or interested precisely because of our own encounter with the experience of conflict or an absence of peace precisely because of our encounter With the experience of unhappiness and a loss or a lack of sense of ease, well-being and happiness in our lives. And to see that this is something we need to really be willing to look at. We come on a retreat. And interestingly enough, surprisingly enough, despite the title, despite the hope that we come and we... Come with great hopes. It's it's actually a rather beautiful thing, and uh, despite all of the uh, sort of the disappointments and struggles of our lives, somehow hope springs eternal. We think ah, meditation retreat, ah, a whole weekend of calm and peacefulness. It's going to be so good. I've just been looking forward to that sort of warm, blissful feeling that I can almost feel starting to come, even as I think about it. Or just at least some space, I'll get some distance, I'll get away from those people, that work, that home situation, whatever it is, all of that, I'll just kind of leave it out there somewhere at some distance and just there'll be a refuge. There'll be this sort of exquisite um, landscape of something that's just not all of that difficult stuff. And that sense of hope is grounded in something, not necessarily skillfully grounded, in something genuine that is what is possible for us. But the way we tend to imagine and conceive how it might come about and what it will look like when it does is much more determined and distorted really by our habitual ways of thinking and conceiving and our conditioning. So... What happens to us when we encounter life like this? What happens to us? It's like we're here on retreat and uh, despite instructions that suggest being present and mindful and alert and relaxed, we find ourselves tense and drowsy or all drowsy. We find rather than present, we're absent most of the time and we're, you know, only amazed by just how remarkably fast our mind can depart for anywhere. Anywhere except right here. And it's a little bit shocking in a certain way to encounter agitation and discomfort and doubt. You know, wondering, "Ah, oh, I can't do this. It's like we come here, the experience isn't quite maybe as we've anticipated. Even if we've been here before and exactly the same thing happened the last time. We turn up and, just a moment, what's going on here? It's not supposed to be like this. And we might find ourselves thinking, well, what's the point of this? I I could be sort of agitated and restless and uncomfortable at home. And there at least I could go to the fridge and, you know, eat whenever I felt like it. Or turn on the television and get some temporary relief. Now, it's not accidental that we've taken away those escape routes here. That there isn't a television. That there isn't a fridge stocked with, you know, juicy tidbits that we can nibble on at any time. Of course, we find other ways to escape. It's amazing how much entertainment can be found in a single notice board. <laughs> you know, even if we've read all of those notices before, several times, sometimes it's like, wow, sort of this interested, excited distraction of something that's just not my experience. It's out there. And we read it, or find ourselves carefully studying the label on our fair trade tea bag. You know, wow. It's just Fascinating. So we find our ways to escape, or we might feel like we want to turn on some music, or we might want to pick up a book. And we really strongly suggest you don't do that. We can't stop you, you free human beings, you're going to do what you want. But we really suggest you don't do that, because what happens when you do that is you lose the opportunity to see what's going on. When we allow ourselves to be carried by those habits. And we are so much of the time anyway. It's not as if there's going to be a shortage of spacing out in your life if you give it up for just a weekend. Or even just give it up for a few moments within a weekend. There'll still be plenty of opportunities for all of that. I can guarantee you. But what's it like to just face that experience? To see what it's like to inhabit our life? So much pressure we place upon ourselves to somehow be able to perform, to be able to be good at it, to get it right, and we don't necessarily even realize that we're doing it. It's so hard to just come along and follow the simple instruction that says, notice what's happening. Just notice what's happening. Don't try and fix it, don't try and improve it, don't try and... Figure it out. Just notice it. See what's going on here. We so quickly start to form views and opinions about our performance. It's like, you know, we're sitting in meditation. This happens and reported regularly. You know, someone's sitting in meditation, just struggling, body aches, mind is drowsy or busy or both. And at some point it's like, how long have I been doing this? Look at our watch not a good idea looking at your watch. You've probably already discovered that. You look at your watch and think, oh no, I've got that much time still to go. We thought it would be a relief because we'd find out we're almost at the end of the sitting, but no it's not. It's another 20 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever. And we look around and everybody else seems to be doing really fine. Have you ever noticed that? Everybody else seems to be able to sit up really straight and they look quite calm and serene and they're not agitated or restless or clearly not having any busy mind or discomfort, and we look at ourselves and say, oh, I can't do this. Everybody else can do this. And, you know, like there's a room full of, you know, nearly enlightened beings and one overcooked vegetable, (laughs) me. Or one wired up sort of basket case or... Whatever it is, however it is we might imagine or describe ourselves. And to see how quickly we take our experience and we start to tell a story based on it, of which in almost always, not always, but almost always, we are at the centre of the story. And the story is being written either about This is less common for us, but it happens about how great we're doing, because sometimes we're looking around thinking, wow, look, you know, everyone else is kind of a bit sort of flaky, but I've really got it, haven't I? You know, three breaths in a row, I'm right on the way. You know, (laughs) sometimes it's like that for us. Or at other times, and more frequently, certainly more frequently reported in the interviews and the groups, is a sense of, oh, not getting anywhere, can't do it, it's hopeless. And we sort of kind of were down on ourselves, really hard on ourselves. It's such a strong habit to blame ourselves for the condition of our heart and our minds. And it's not really helpful. It doesn't improve the situation. It doesn't support our ability to really understand what's going on, to transform it. So here the invitation is again and again, just notice how you do that. If that's what you're doing. If you're doing something else, that's fine, notice that. Not suggesting you're supposed to be doing what I just described, but nor am I saying that you're not supposed to be doing it. Again, the invitation and the instruction is to notice what you're doing. When we say pay attention to your breathing, I certainly, Kirsten equally, don't have any idea that the result of that is going to be some unbroken sequence of mindful breaths for the next 45 minutes on behalf of everyone in the room. Not at all, but by paying attention or having the intention to attend to the breath as we're sitting in the body, or to our steps as we're walking. It's like our mind starts to become more like a mirror. By paying it, trying or seeking to pay attention to a chosen object, we start to see what else is going on. Start to notice in a way that becomes starkly and sometimes embarrassingly clear, in a way we can't avoid it. And we don't need to avoid it. We need to see it. We need to understand. So this practice that we're engaged tonight, I like to call it happiness training. That's the phrase I finally came up with when trying to explain to parents and friends what I was doing years ago, um, when they really didn't have much of a sense at all of what this was. And in the days when... If in a conversation it should come to the point where you're asked what you do and you to say meditation that would be a pretty quick way to end the conversation um it seemed to be these days it's rather delightfully not the case and most people seem to respond with some sense of interest or curiosity or um knowing somebody who's done something of that order um, but that that sense of so happiness training it's like trying to translate this Dharma path and teaching. What does happiness training mean for us? Why would we undertake it? It's challenging, as any form of training can be and is. Because it asks us to go beyond our limits, beyond the constraints of the familiar and the known and the comfortable. And are we willing to do that? Are we willing to go beyond the comfortable? Because so much of the, the momentum and habit of life, unconscious life, is trying to pull back, withdraw into a cocoon of comfort, of safety, of or apparent safety that's what we wish for. Where things are pleasant, unchallenging, unthreatening, and where we could in fact simply go to sleep. Which is what that whole tendency, that whole pull is where we kind of want to disengage, we want to be somewhere where there's no... Who, who, Who wouldn't put their hand up and take it if an offer was a life in which there'd be nothing difficult, nothing painful, nothing scary, nothing uncomfortable, nothing unsettling, nothing that we didn't like? Who wouldn't put their hand up and say, yes, please, I would. I'd be right there at the front of the line. And yet of course that's a fantasy isn't it that's it's not like that sort of life is on offer to us but that tendency that wish that we have that pull that holds on to a fantasy of that possibility is something to really be examined to be really seen so this is a challenging thing to undertake we might rather just have it given to us on a plate and just you know my life sold for me, you know the image of the fairy godmother who was just gonna ping with magic wand and ha ah. Dharma teachings aren't that, unfortunately. It requires us to take responsibility for what's going on, so far as we are responsible, and equally to let go of responsibility for what's going on, so far as we're not responsible for it. The Buddha observed with regard to suffering. He once said, I know of no one thing that conduces more to suffering than an untrained mind, an untrained heart mind. And I know of no one thing that conduces more to the end of suffering than a well-trained mind, a well-trained heart mind. So this undertaking or this journey of happiness training It's not easy, but it's worth the challenge. It's worth the effort. Because the discovery, the the realization of, of true happiness and peace that is possible for all of us asks us to really enter into the depths of our hearts, our minds, our lives consciously. And as we do that, what we start to see is that so much of our actions, whether our actions in the world of body and speech or equally the actions that we could call reactions take place in our mind, the thoughts, the patterns, the habits of our inner activity, so much of that is driven by unconscious forces of negativity, of selfishness, And self-centeredness. And of anger. Judgment and hatred. And the forces that we can encounter within us. And that we can see in our world. That these words point to. As something that lead to suffering in our lives. And lead to suffering in this world. And we can see that. It's not. News to any of us to see that being self centered leads to dissatisfaction, that anger leads to conflict when unskillfully expressed or acted out on without attentiveness and sensitivity. This is something we know, we understand. And with that, just to say that that doesn't mean that there isn't an important place for taking care of our own well-being. That self-centeredness is when we disregard others and only are concerned with ourselves. But it's equally important that we don't disregard ourselves and be only concerned with others. That's just another form of self-centeredness that's turned really on its head. But it has the same effect. In Dharma teachings we are invited to give equal value to other and to self. To equally care for our needs as for the needs of those around us. Because in truth if we disregard any part of the whole it will not serve our happiness or the welfare of this world. We need to include all expressions of life in the field of our care. And if we notice that there is a way in which one aspect, whether others or ourselves, has not so been so fully included, our practice asks us to bring that into balance. And likewise with anger, When I say that anger leads to suffering if unskillfully or if unconsciously acted out, this is true and apparent. We can see that anger and fear seem to build with each other, leading easily to hatred and conflict, to polarization in the world and between individuals, and equally within our own hearts, between ourselves and some part of ourselves that we find it difficult to accept or to allow to be there. And recognizing that isn't to say that sometimes the experience of anger is inappropriate. There's times when it can be appropriate. It's not that in itself it's something that shouldn't happen, but that we need to understand that it's coming out of a wish or a need to protect or preserve something of value. And that the way it expresses itself often through judgment and Violence, whether verbal or physical or just in the thinking, in the violence of the thoughts, which may be directed to others or may be directed and so painfully directed to ourselves, that that isn't useful, that isn't skillful, that doesn't actually help us take care of those things we wish to care for, those things we wish to protect, and that we may need to take action born of that caring, but not or defined by the reactivity that shows itself as anger. And yet, having acknowledged or recognised these things, which again, I don't think this is sort of, for anyone who has spent any time at all looking at themselves, we see that this is so. Um, There's perhaps plenty in the world who might not acknowledge that and it was kind of interesting to hear reference in sort of the public debate about what's happening in the world, in the financial world at the moment, that some of this might have been brought on by greed. Shock, horror, someone noticed. You know, remarkable that somebody noticed. Uh, And that, but uh, so much of that is just taken for granted and it seems so much of the uh, conventional or corporate world that somehow that's okay. And yet we see in the end that it causes people to act blindly and foolishly in ways that cause harm. We can see in the same way with ourselves that if we do not address in our hearts and minds the tendency towards reactive thoughts, actions and words, that we find ourselves entangled more and more in pain, regret and suffering. More and more distant from the The peace and the happiness that we yearn for. So paying attention to our experience, it's not always good news. But what we start to see is those habits of reactivity. And we see quite clearly. We also start to see how disinclined we are to really just be in the experience. How strongly we are pulled away. How compelling is the urge to escape. And it takes some patience and real commitment to keep doing what we're doing here, to keep reconnecting, to keep coming back. To not judge or be hard on yourselves for the number of times your attention wanders, for the length of time your attention wanders. You know how many people report on retreat the sort ah, you know, I keep. Getting distracted, I keep getting distracted, I keep getting lost. And yet, of course, if we keep getting lost, it's because we keep getting found. Otherwise, it would only happen once. And that would be it gone, lost, never before, never again heard of. And it actually wouldn't be a problem if that happened because you wouldn't even know it was happening. And so, in a way, almost unfortunately, we've actually come to realize it's happening. And having realized it's happening, you know, in a certain way there's no going back. It's really hard to get ourselves back into really believing in unconsciousness when we've seen what it's like and how powerful it is, how dominating it can be. So this process of cultivating being conscious is not like something we can do. It's not like an act of will produces somehow we're awake. And yet, through the sustained intention, through enacting that intention by whenever we realize that we're lost, reconnecting. Whenever we find ourselves reacting to what's going on, just stopping with that, resting in that place. As we do that more and more, our capacity for that increases, and the The way the orientation of our life or the trajectory of our life starts to align with that intention to be more conscious, to be more awake, to open to and to receive our life. So having a clear intention and yet a gentleness and a kindness in how we hold the process, how we hold our own struggles with the process, which are inevitable. Growing any process of growing involves difficulty, involves mistakes, involves getting it wrong and having to start again. There's no other way that we learn. There's a great story of a um, a uh, Zen practitioner who has the very rare and special opportunity to visit the great and uh, high, highest and most respected master of their lineage. And he, he's, he's, he has the opportunity for a very brief interview. He, he comes in a little nervous and, and, and asks the master after after bowing and paying his respects, he says, can you tell me what's the most important thing to cultivate? And the master looks at him very sternly and says, good judgment. And he, he, the student looks at the master and He says, oh, thank you, thank you, master. Can, can you tell me how do you get good judgment master looks back says experience oh experience yeah that makes sense Um, how do you get experience mm, bad judgment <coughs> there is no other way all the mistakes all the wrong turnings all the blind alleys we've ever followed in our life are inevitably part of the journey of our learning and our awakening. Only by encountering those places of difficulty, of darkness, of confusion, of pain, do we start to look more deeply. Do we start to feel that we perhaps wish to turn our life away from the habit of unconsciousness, from the history of unconsciousness, and really learn what it means to live more fully in the light of consciousness and what that might mean for us. It's not somehow some place we're trying to get to. It is as much the way in which we are orienting ourselves in any given moment as some destination to which we are heading. Thich Han, the Zen master and um, poet who was also a, a peace activist in Vietnam and a much beloved sort of uh, representative of the, of the Dharma? He was once asked, in the context of the Vietnam conflict, he said, he was asked by, a, I think it was a, a reporter, what is the way to peace? And his response was, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Remarkable and beautiful turning around of our habitual way of peace is somewhere else. How do I get there? And yet, what he's he's pointing to there is that that possibility is right here in the way we engage with the fact of conflict. Peace is right in this moment when we see where conflict exists in our heart and we approach that from a place of willingness to meet it with a sense perhaps of kindness and interest rather than condemnation or judgment or wish for it to go away which is really just a form of rejecting and just leads to more suffering. Likewise, happiness. There is no path to happiness. Happiness is the path. What do we mean? But what would that mean? So much of the condition of lacking peace is because we're in conflict with the way things are. So much of the sense of unhappiness is born of an unwillingness to receive things as they are. It's not to do with the way things are. It's to do with our habitual relationship to it. And this we can transform. We're not in charge of the world. We can't get it to be in a certain way. I mean, if you've even tried that with one other person, you'll know how frustrating and annoying it is. Just to get one person to be the way you'd want them to be. And equally, of course, with our own mind. Have you tried to get your mind to do what you want it to this weekend so far? To follow the quite reasonable request to be calm and peaceful and just sit here absorbing your breath? its quite a reasonable request. But is that what it does? Can we make our mind do that? Put your hand up if you've managed it. So what does that say about life? If we can't even... This that feels so intimate to us, so close to us that we... Imagine... Not entirely, truth accurately in fact, but we imagine this to be what we are, who we are. And yet we can't even get this to do what we want it to. What hope have you got of getting the world to line up according to your wishes and plans? And what would it mean to... Really? Really? Let go of that wish for life to be other than as it is. And yet, not abandon your aspiration for peace and for happiness. Because it may be that that which you seek is to be found in a way different than you might have imagined. What we need to bring in to our lives, many of us, if not all of us, is an immense amount of kindness. So much of our lack of peace, our sense of distance from the much yearned for happiness, arises from failing to bring. Or not remembering to bring kindness into our life in all the places that so deeply need it, we much more quickly bring judgment and rejection to bear upon things that we find difficult. And the Buddha spoke of this in very direct and stark terms. He talked about the condition of life, saying that, you know, we have this body, all of us, couldn't be sitting here without one. And this body is subject to birth, aging, sickness, death. And that for us this is not easy to be born, to be ill at times, to be aging, feeling our capacities and abilities reducing or becoming limited. And apparently it begins when you're 22. Your brain starts to deteriorate and the body, so science has recently and cheeringly pointed out, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, this, this bodily experience, and sometimes it's the body is pretty painful, and there isn't some way around it, you know one of the things we invite here is to just stay with the uncomfortable when we can, see if we can relax and open to it, not because we think that more pain is a good idea and it's somehow good for you, so if you need some more of it in your life, but because sometime all of us are going to encounter things. That we can't just adjust a way out of. We can't just get up and walk away from. Them because they'll follow us and they'll be with us. And how are we going to deal with that? Some of you here are having to face that reality. As we all at times will have to. <coughs> so just really seeing, oh, what does that need? To just acknowledge this body as subject to having been born, as subject to aging. Subject to sickness. Ultimately subject to death. And how that touches us. Seeing when we hear, and you know, in our society it's not spoken of so much. We don't kind of really like to let it in. We keep it, sort of try to keep it tidied away to a certain extent. And yet it points us to something about the nature of life. All the things that we love and care for are not forever. People. People. Situations, parts of our own experience that we may have cherished or loved, been close to, do not last forever. We are parted through accident or through intention. And what's that like for us to live in a world where we love deeply, we care deeply for others, for ourselves, for many things? And yet we're not able to protect those things or ourselves from loss, from death, from vulnerability, from pain. The Buddha spoke of the condition of our hearts as encountering at times in life pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation and despair. And it's like, whoa, you know, that sounds like quite a lot to be getting on with. I'm not meaning to be light or flippant about it, but it's like, oh, can we really let that in? All of us in our lives encounter this. It's not just you or me or someone unfortunate whose tragic circumstances are somehow set them apart from anyone else. Each and every human being that cares, and we all do, also encounters what happens when that which we care for dies or is lost, lost to us. And we need to really let this in. We also have minds. You've had possibly more opportunity than you might have really wished for to notice that you've got a mind, even just in 24 hours. We see our minds and how prolifically they produce thoughts. Again, you might be a rare exception and you've been sitting there rather calmly without too much mental activity and lovely, nothing wrong with that. But for many what happens when we sit down is we just see how relentless it is and how so much of what we're thinking about has got to do with getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, getting what we like, getting away from what we don't like. Have you noticed how much of that goes on? And the Buddha said with regard to our minds that we all experience separation from that which we like. We all experience association with that which we don't like. And we all experience not getting what we want. How annoying. And yet it's true, isn't it? And yet we get annoyed about it, but it's true for all of us. get annoyed with our mind for being that busy and annoying. And look, we just keep doing it, don't we? If we can see that that's the condition we're in and accept that, look, this is the product of unconsciousness, of just allowing habitual reactivity to run unchecked for decades in most of our cases. And even once we've practiced, we discover practice and we engage in practice, and we're wholehearted and committed, and maybe for many years and decades, in fact, what we can still notice is plenty of the time we're still letting that unconscious spinning run. And it takes time to address its effect, to transform its effect. There's always something, isn't there? There's always something difficult, you know? Our mind keeps leaping from one thing to another looking for the problem. And what we actually need to do is bring a sense of kindness to the unease or the distress or the fear that seems to underlie it all. To be able to hold that with kindness. To not reject or judge ourselves nor blame ourselves for the fact of this condition. And yet to take responsibility for what's possible, what it means to bring kindness to our life, is just to accept where we are. This is where you are. You cannot be somewhere else. And you do not need to be somewhere else. Because right here, if you can turn towards this place, if you can open into this experience, even if the very experience that you're asked to open to is the experience of feeling that you're closed or that you're unable to open to anything or that you're distant or disconnected or shut down. Even that too, if you can simply recognize it for what it is and see that in the recognizing of it, in that simple awareness, there is a space and a light that is the light that reveals it. That capacity that notices it, that sees it. That in and of itself is not bound by that condition, no matter how difficult it is. No matter how painful or scary it is. That capacity we have to see it. And if we can see it without resisting, without rejecting, without judging, but just see it. And equally see the resistance and see the rejection and see the judgment when it takes place. And again, just rest in that, ah, look, this is where we are. What happens is that the unconscious and habitual gap that we hold between ourself and life starts to close. The way in which we hold ourselves away from or apart from life conceiving ourselves, imagining ourselves to be separate and removed from it and therefore needing to protect ourselves from it or or seeking to somehow manipulate life for our benefit. As we come closer, as we allow ourselves to really fully inhabit, rest into this experience that is now, that is here, That sense of being distant or apart or cut off or separate. That is the core of our suffering. That is the deepest and most painful depth of unease that we feel. That begins to shift. Not that what we're experiencing has necessarily shifted. But that how we're experiencing It has shifted. And how we're perhaps looking at it or how we're understanding it begins to change. Bringing the courage of heart and the kindness to just meet our life, our mind, our body, our heart, in the condition that it's in. This is an immense expression of kindness. And it's transformative beyond measure. Because so long and insofar as we're constantly struggling with what's going on. Constantly looking for something to be better. And we are. Have you noticed? Like, we're sitting here. We can't wait till the sitting's over. Oh, you know, how much longer? How much longer? The bell rings. Ah, oh, Great. Ah, it's walking. Oh, okay, walking, okay. Oh, it's not that bad, I guess. We start on the walking, walking. How long do you manage the walking for? We start to wish, when's the walking going to come and end? When's that going to finish? You know. Can I have a cup of tea now? I want to do something else. Or maybe lunchtime. Lunchtime will be the relief. Or supper. Yet we get our meal and immediately we're thinking about something else again. We're keeping getting pulled out of where we are. And hear the encouragement, just come back, come back, come back again and again. Because when we free ourselves, as we begin to free ourselves from that compulsive movement away from where we are, a compulsive need to withdraw, disconnect from, or to pursue something other than this, there's a natural quality of of just abiding that we begin to notice, that begins to touch us, perhaps that we're not necessarily aware of to begin with, that consciously or clearly. But we might just notice moments of just somehow landing more deeply into our experience, landing more fully, and that there's something in it that just releases and lets go and just like, ah. Yes. It's like we recognize something. Even though we couldn't say quite what it is. We recognize something that's right here. That's in the midst of all of this. And even if just in moments. That's possible for us. It speaks to the capacity and the potentiality. To live more and more fully. In contact with that understanding. And that understanding that. That peace and happiness are somehow woven around the content of our experience and not defined by it. That there's a a condition of coming to a rest. Coming to rest that we're learning to more and more fully discover and inhabit here. And from that place of rest, we begin to see our life through fresh eyes. We begin to trust our life as a journey which is really for our awakening rather than simply for our comfort or pleasure. And there's a deep joy in this and a great relief. Because in our hearts we know this already and that's why we're here. In our hearts we understand that this journey of awakening, this path is one that in order for us to grow must challenge us and it does. So I'd like to finish with a, a quote from Ajahn Chah, who was a great uh, teacher in the uh, forest tradition of Thailand in the 20th century. And uh, He once said, and I think really summed up the whole thing rather beautifully, he once said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. And you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So, having our intention to be present, to try to be mindful, and let things take their natural course, our contribution is that intention and willingness to be as present as we're able, and our wisdom suggests and invites us to let things take their natural course. See what happens if you do that. So let's sit quietly for a moment or two.